Once again, good morning, Wildlife Baptist Church family, uh, guests in person, online. Uh, welcome to our church. It's really good to be able to see a lot of you guys here this morning. As we regularly do, um, we will be journeying through the passage and then we're reading it through. Um, but it's a little long this morning. Uh, it's, it's fairly long. And so a word of warning, not really a word of warning, but maybe for you guys, I want to encourage you guys as we read through this passage, as we journey together, I want you guys to, keep, to, to pay careful, careful attention to one thing. Pay attention to the determination of Paul and Barnabas. That as we read these 28 verses, I want you to see how they're persevering to make Christ known. And they're doing this from city to city, trial by trial, day by day. So please follow along with me in Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 1 and going through the end. Chapter 14, verse 1 begins and says, Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd saying, Men! Why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good, By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. 
But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples had gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then passing through Pisidia and Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga and went to Adalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Please join with me in prayer. Dear God, we come before you this morning confessing again that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can stand before you today. And it is through Christ that we may experience the assurance of your love, never-ending grace and absolute rest. We thank you for the gift of your church and the gift of your Holy Spirit that guides us, strengthens us, and sanctifies us to the image of your Son. We pray that you meet us wherever we are this morning. And as we do, we, we lift up our neighbors both locally and globally who have not yet heard the true gospel. From the psalm we just read earlier, we pray that you would show them your steadfast love and grant them salvation. We pray for the children that you've blessed us with here at this church and we pray that, you would, that, that they would come to know Jesus at a young age and that you would spare them from seasons of rebellion. Please, again, grow in them a desire to serve you, to love you, we pray for those who find themselves lost and lonely this morning. May they find comfort that only comes through knowing you more and more, deeper and deeper, day by day. And for the hurting and the weak, may your peace and your strength abound. We pray for those battling sickness and those recovering, those who are in fear. We pray that your grace pray that your strength, your peace abound. We pray for all the, the family members and medical staff who are caring for them. May you be their strength, their source of rest. Guide them in times of frustration, times when they feel the weight of tomorrow. Bring them fresh joy today and strength for tomorrow. 
We pray for the handful of middle school students that join us week to week, and we pray that you, you carry them through the difficulties and the questions that they're bombarded with day by day, and may you continually lead them to know your grace. We pray for all those who are married, those with young families, and especially those who are struggling in their marriages. May you grant them wisdom. Reveal to them their sin. Guide them in your grace and restore their joy. We pray for our young singles and our college students. May you sustain them during stressful times. Delight them in knowing your nearness. And for those who are new, visiting with us here this morning, we pray that you guide them to experience the measurable joy of salvation this morning. And Lord, we pray that you guide us as we study your word now this morning. We, we pray these things in the power of Christ's name. Amen. Amen, amen. If this is your first time joining us here at Wiley, again, welcome. We have been journeying through the book of Acts in a series entitled Becoming His Church. We started this series back in January, so it's been several months, and in these months, we have witnessed how Luke records the birth and the development of his church. As we've mentioned earlier, our hope in this series is not that we become a type of church. We don't want to become an amped up church that wants to grow into some sort of culturally relevant church. We don't want to become the next collegiate, next gen church. We don't want to become a a high production, attractional church. Nor is it our goal to be a politically savvy church a traditionally conservative, ultra-ly conservative church, or even the most esteemed academic church. We don't market our church based on a type, an age preference, a language, an image, or even a nationality, or any other unique distinction. Our goal, again, our goal for this series is that we become his church. And it's through the study of his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. Acts is uniquely significant because it's the first record of church history, and it also marks this crucial turning point in redemptive history. We went over the fivefold gospel several times here in our worship service, but also in different parts of the church. This is all about his story. This is the history that we share as all believers. And we find the roots of our church here on 21st Avenue in Acts. In other words, as we journey through Acts, we can confidently say that this is the 2,000-year-old history of our church. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Their mission is our mission. Their victories are a call for our celebration. Their trials, our encouragement. Their story, our history. Once again, it is called Acts because it records not just the acts of these men, these apostles, and it's not just recording the acts of the early church, but it's the acts of the triune God from the Father, through his Son, and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And it is seen, it is evidenced here in the lives of the apostles and the obedience of his church. Where does the text live? Chapter 14 directly picks up where we left off last week. And as Matt mentioned last week, it would have been 
nice to have that sunset ending in chapter 13. It would have been nice if chapter 13 ended with verse 49. That after Paul and Barnabas faithfully advanced the gospel message, that chapter 13 would end on this high note. That the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But it continues. What we see in the closing verses of last week's chapter, chapter 13, it gives us a glimpse of the coming opposition that floods chapter 14. Despite increasing opposition, despite discouraging responses to the gospel, despite intense persecution, and despite several adversities, Paul and Barnabas complete the first missionary journey through the truth of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The title of the sermon this morning is Persevere to Make Christ Known. And again, we'll be in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 28. For those of you who don't identify as a Christian this morning, we're so glad you're here. My hope, I have two hopes for you. My hope, my first hope is that you will understand why Christians are so determined to make Christ known, even if it costs them their lives. My second hope for you, non-believer, my hope in prayer is that you will treasure Christ and embrace your personal need for him this morning. Christians, my hope is that you will not only be inspired by the enduring example of Paul and Barnabas, but that you would also be encouraged by the faithfulness of the Lord who rescued Paul from every trial. For this, we're going to be breaking up the text into three stages based on location, where I will offer five exhortations, five principles for us to make Christ known in our everyday lives. So let's hit the first stage. The first stage is making Christ known in Iconium. Therefore, believers must first make Christ known with an unshakable boldness. As with many of Paul's missionary journeys, this hike to Iconium was not an easy one. This city was approximately 90 miles, possibly 100 miles from the city that they were just kicked out of. And again, unlike modern missionary, missionary trips that we see today, Paul and Barnabas did not have the comforts of air travel or bus travel. They had to travel on foot. The ship would have taken several days as they traveled to the rolling countryside in the Sultan Mountain Range. This would have been a strenuous journey that led them to both immediate success and immediate opposition. Verses one through three, we see that What is needed exactly to make Christ known with unshakable boldness? Paul and Barnabas reached Iconium and they entered together into the Jewish synagogue to share the gospel. Again, last week, Acts chapter 13, it gives us the similar picture of what Paul is doing here in Iconium, where he is telling the overarching story of the Bible, that fivefold gospel thing that we talked about, which culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In this verse, we also see a summary statement. The gospel was unleashed, and a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But verse 2 explains that it wasn't long before trouble followed. 
unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against Paul and Barnabas. Now, I agree with Tim Keller when he writes this. He says, the greater the effectiveness of a ministry, the greater the resistance and opposition. Paul and Barnabas experienced this principle of gospel ministry. So it begs the question, how did Paul and Barnabas respond to this stirred-up hatred against them? Their response is astounding. Look at, look at verse 3. In response to this opposition, they, remind, or they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. This is striking. Don't mistake Paul's boldness for his forgetfulness. Remember, Paul just came from a situation where people from the synagogue attacked him for sharing the good news of the gospel message. He was just kicked out of that town. He wouldn't have forgotten that. Nonetheless, here we find Paul back at it again in the synagogue, a place where he will likely find hostile opposition all over again. But instead of shrinking back, instead of being intimidated, Paul and Barnabas continued to bear witness to the gospel message of God's grace with an unshakable boldness. So Christians, in the same way, I exhort you to make Christ known. Make Christ known with an unshakable boldness. This is not, I have to caution you, this is not a challenge from me for you to muster up some sort of courage within yourself, nor is it communicating some principle of this white-knuckled, strong-willed, gospel-proclaiming approach. Christians, I am urging you to follow the example of Paul and Barnabas here in chapter 14, that as they relied on the Lord, they were wholeheartedly dependent on God to give them The grace-enabled grit to endure hardship in gospel ministry. I hope that that is our prayer this morning. In the first stage, we also see another principle, and this is two of five. We also see how Paul and Barnabas make Christ known prudently and persistently. Prudently and persistently. You see, although there were a great number of Jews and Greeks who believed, the town became increasingly polarized. They were becoming more and more divided. See, some within the city sided with the Jews and some with Paul and Barnabas. And the division resulted in a planned attempt to attack Paul and Barnabas. This wouldn't have been an execution by the city officials. Rather, this seems to be that of a mob lynching like we saw in chapter 13, and what we saw with Stephen. Upon learning of this danger, they relocated their ministry to Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. As one pastor commented, sometimes the best way to make the gospel known may mean remaining, but at other times, it may mean relocating. For such matters, one must seek the Father who promises to give his children wisdom when they ask him. This is coming from James 1.5. This came back to prayer. This came back to wisdom from God. 
So Christian, in the same way, I exhort you to make Christ known both prudently and persistently. I've had the joy of talking with some of you who are just so frustrated with trying to make Christ known with your parents who are not believers, loved ones, nieces, nephews, sons, daughters, co-workers, people in the office. This is an encouragement and an exhortation for you Make Christ known prudently and persistently. Perhaps you are in a similar way facing discouragement. Some of you, maybe even listening online, possibly even persecution for making Christ known to lost loved ones. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart, weary brother in Christ. Do not lose heart, discouraged sister in Christ. May you find encouragement In this passage in Hebrews that says, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Like the previous exhortation, this is not a challenge to find within yourself some deep wisdom, nor is it looking into yourself for gospel persistence. This is a call for all believers to look to Christ who endured hostility so that we can face hostility in his name, through his spirit, and for his glory. As I've said many times before when I've had the opportunity to preach, the only reason we can do these actions, the only reason we can face hostility against the enemies of the gospel is because Christ has already faced hostility against the enemy and won. Christians, turn to Christ and only then can you receive the wisdom and the tenacity to make Christ known. We're moving on to our third exhortation this morning. It's in the second stage. The second stage in chapter 14 is making Christ known in Lystra and Derby. And this is from verses 8 through 21a. Therefore, believers must make Christ known with an accurate yet adaptable witness. Make Christ known with an accurate yet adaptable witness. The next scene opens with this crucial event or the crucial events that happened in Lystra. In Paul's day, Lystra was a simple, small country town. Uh, One commentator says uh, it's a frontier outpost of the Roman Empire. Another scholar comments that in Lystra, the Romans ruled the land, the Greeks controlled the commerce, and the Jews, they had little influence. Much like the Wild West, The people of Lystra were considered by outsiders to be brutal and barbarous. But this is where Paul and Barnabas continued to preach the gospel. The fact that they don't begin their gospel ministry in the synagogue seems to suggest that one did not exist in Lystra. It would also seem that Paul and Barnabas would be open-air preaching, perhaps at the entrance, the city gates. But the first person we encounter here in this text is a man who is crippled from birth. And Dr. Luke, he adds this detail that he had never walked before because he was unable to use his feet. 
we see a lot of connection points to the way that Luke describes the, the healing of the crippled man in Acts chapter 3. So like the, the healing of the crippled man at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3 verses 2 through 10, we see God heal this man, giving him the ability to walk for the first time. Like many of the miracles that we have seen in Acts, this miracle was to catch the attention of onlookers so that they may hear the powerful word of God that would lead them to salvation. But instead of seeking salvation, these people of Lystra just got the wrong idea. In their ignorance, in their sheer excitement of the miraculous healing, they began to worship Paul and Barnabas in their native language. Hopefully, uh, I'll win back some of you guys, because last time I talked, I kind of dogged on Lord of the Rings, but I'm going to bring back our Star Wars, so all you Star Wars fans. There's a scene in Star Wars uh, that I'm reminded of <laughs> in this passage, uh, in The Return of the Jedi, where this entire village worships the main character's droid, because they have never seen anything like him before. And they worshipped him because they couldn't explain the miraculous things that he was doing. Similarly, here in verse 11, we see a similar picture. The amazed crowd begins to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. Seems a little strange, doesn't it? So why is this? Why? Where, where did that come from? There's an ancient legend that was held by these Lystrians of, of the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. And they came down to their hill country in Lystra, disguised as mortals seeking hospitality. But in this legend, everyone rejected them, except for one poor couple, with a humble cottage made of reeds and straw. So Zeus and Hermes rewarded this poor couple greatly for their generosity, making their straw humble hut a temple, and then placed them guardians in it. And they also punished the unwelcoming residents of Lystra with a catastrophic flood. So whether it was out of their superstitious fear of judgment or their hopeful desire for a divine reward, these Lyconians were determined to not make the same mistake of their forefathers. It is understandable that Paul and Barnabas did not at first recognize what was taking place because the people were crying out in their own native language. But as soon as they saw the priest of Zeus running down from the entrance, the temple carrying with him oxen and garlands for a divine sacrifice, Paul and Barnabas tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd saying that not only were they merely men, but they have come to declare to them the good news of the true living God. The, the rending of their garments was a sign of either mourning, we see this in Genesis chapter 37, or, or anguish in Joshua chapter 7, or protests towards perceived blasphemy. And in this action, they urged the people to stop worshiping them. And they began to proclaim the good news to them. I'm reminded of this earlier scene as well in Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius bowed down to Peter, worshiping him. What did Peter do? Peter quickly lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. You see, there's this pattern, again, that we're seeing that faithful believers recognize that only God, only 
only God is worthy to receive worship. But Paul wasn't ready to give up on these people. He was ready to tell them the good news of the gospel. I can only imagine the hope that Paul had as he looked around, saw these idol worshipers, and began to tell them the good news of God. Paul's sermon in this narrative is of great value. As John Stott comments, this excerpt from Paul's sermon in Lystra is very, very important because it's the only record or is the only recorded sermon Paul makes to illiterate pagans. It's very helpful for us today to know how to bridge the gospel to other people. See, not only were these uneducated people, they also came from a culture immersed in superstition and folklore. Unlike previous ministry, unlike the Jews in the synagogues, these Lystrians had no prior understanding of the Jewish scriptures that was supposed to lead them to Christ, the Messiah. So here we see Paul make Christ known with an accurate yet adaptable witness. Paul's going to later offer the best commentary on this section in his sermon later in Acts chapter 17 as he preaches to the people in Athens. Instead of beginning with some sort of Sunday school lesson about Jewish traditions or a Sunday school lesson on the Hebrew language, no, like Paul begins by teaching them about monotheism. He begins by teaching them of the nature and the work of the one living God. Stott comments here again and says, one can't help but admire the flexibility of Paul's evangelistic approach. Instead of starting his sermon on the coming of Christ, Paul begins by directing them to this basic theological concept that there is one God. Back to the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, that we worship one God. Because these Lystrians worshiped many gods, They did not know the one true God. This one true God that made the world and everything in it. John Polhill explains that Paul's accurate yet adaptable witness concisely, or he he says that uh, Paul's accurate yet adaptable witness concisely when he commented that Paul used the argument from creation, again, to build bridges to establish a point of identification with his pagan audience. While they have never probably heard of Paul's God before, they had seen him in his providential works of nature. They have seen God in the ways that he provided for them. Christians, I want to exhort you again, make Christ known with an accurate yet adaptable witness. Whether you have struggled with a language barrier while witnessing in foreign countries, or even if you've been frustrated with the struggles of witnessing to fidgeting toddlers, be encouraged that there is a means to accurately and adaptably share the gospel message with them. Be encouraged that you're not alone, and be encouraged that you have a church full of brothers and sisters in Christ who wish to become better equipped in gospel ministry, in order to witness right alongside you. Number four or five, in this second stage, we also see how Paul and Barnabas make Christ known despite 
physical and emotional setbacks. Paul was eager to introduce to them the one true God. But it seems as though the rest of his message was either undocumented by Luke or it was simply interrupted by the mob in verses 18 and 19. My heart goes out to Paul. I can only imagine the amount of frustration, discouragement, and uncertainty Paul and Barnabas must have felt in their gospel witness there. In verse 18, we see that the introduction to Paul's sermon could not stop these Lystrians from worshiping Paul and Barnabas as idols, revering them as gods. To add to this chaos, non-believing Jews from Antioch and Iconium apparently followed Paul to Lystra and finally here caught up to him. See, this is no stroll in the park or a spontaneous, thoughtless act This was a 20-mile journey from Iconium and close to an additional 100 miles from the other Antioch. With every step of this mob, there was this increasing aggression. There was a determination and there was an intent to kill Paul and Barnabas, these missionaries. And when this mob finally arrived, What did they do? They persuaded the people of Lystra against these missionaries. And in an act of mob violence, this large crowd of both Jews and Gentiles began to kill Paul by the throwing of stones. Perhaps as these rocks crashed into his chest and into his skull, he was possibly reminded of Stephen's execution in which he participated in. Or perhaps he remembered hearing the words of Stephen's prayer as he took his final breath. Lord, do not hold this against him. The public execution that was planned for him in Iconium in chapter 14, verse 5, was now taking place here in Lystra. As the final stones began to hit his lifeless body, they decided to drag him out of the city. But this is not the end of the story. Now I want to direct your attention to the details in verses 20 and 21. So look at verse 20 and 21. I want you to witness how despite physical and emotional setbacks that we just saw, Paul was absolutely determined to make Christ known. Paul was just publicly executed. His body was just dragged out of the city and everyone thought him to be dead. And as his disciples surrounded him, possibly in dismay or a sign of love or even in prayer together, Paul got up. With blood spattered clothes and probably caked up with a mixture of blood and dirt, Paul went back to the city with the disciples where he was just attacked. And get this, he stayed the night. Get this, in verse 20, it continues with, on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby, about 60 miles on foot, preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples there. I want to share with you a quick story. I'm reminded of George Whitfield's perseverance in gospel ministry. Close to 300 years ago, one historian recounts, in the spring of 1742, there's this preacher named Whitefield 
and he enjoyed some of his most successful preaching ever at the Moorfields in London. Some there did not enjoy his successes very much, however. The fields were lined with booths and booths of stage players, puppeteers, clowns, and other entertainers. Whitefield wanted to lift up a standard amongst them in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. As he mounted a field pulpit, thousands of people left the entertainer's booths to hear Whitefield's performance. The angry entertainers followed them, not to listen, but to aggressively confront him. Hear this. Soon a hail of stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats were thrown at this preacher. A clown climbed up upon a man's shoulders and tried to slash Whitefield with a whip. And every time he swung at Whitefield, however, this clown tumbled down instead of hitting this preacher. And yet another clown climbed up a tree close to Whitefield's pulpit and shamefully exposed his nakedness before all the people, causing a chorus of hoots and laughter. But to their dismay, Every attempt to silence Whitefield failed. And he went on preaching, praying, and singing for three more hours. This was so that people could hear the gospel. This is so that people could turn to Christ and find hope in his blood. Faithful believers desire to make Christ known despite physical and emotional setbacks. And it's possible that this event here in chapter 14 was one that he thought of when he later writes, Paul writes this, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Paul also writes, I was once stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from the brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's my concern for all the churches. So what is it? What is it that keeps believers motivated to persevere? What fuels believers to make Christ known despite physical setbacks and emotional setbacks? One pastor answers this question very well. He says, the thread that runs throughout chapter 14 tells us the answer. Remembering the importance of the gospel keeps us fueled. Paul couldn't stop preaching it even if he wanted to, even if it meant suffering. You see, the good news of the gospel compelled him. Christian, may the good news of the gospel compel you to make Christ known despite physical setbacks and emotional setbacks. The final stage in chapter 14 is celebrating Christ known in fellowship. This is verses 21b to the end. Therefore, 
believers, you must make Christ known. And listen to this. You must make Christ known through your commitment to the local church. Make Christ known through your commitment to the local church. Making Christ known does not just come from solely, just coming from telling non-believers about Jesus. There's a much bigger picture about making Christ known than just words. Making Christ known also comes from your commitment to the body, to the local church. The commitment that I'm challenging you towards, I think, I think is uniquely difficult for our church let alone many of the churches here in Hawaii. Now, I've had the honor here of getting to know you all this past year, and I've got to say, it's, it's truly been a gift for me and for my family. And there, there are many things that I believe that our local church here does very well. I could take, I could take the time to list down these things. But, but there's one thing that I've noticed that our church struggles with. And it's this understanding of the relational depth that comes with the commitment of being a member of the local church. And this is going to be some hard love kind of moments here. But again, out of love, my deep love for each and every one of you as you grow in your faith or even grow to understand who is Christ for the first time. I need to explain to you what this commitment means. See, our commitment to one another goes beyond service, serving somewhere in the church. Our commitment to one another also goes beyond supporting things. It goes beyond learning facts. Coming from our membership covenant, it is, what is this commitment? It is a sacred promise made between the members of this church to be united as one body in Christ. And we're not talking about commitment to a production of the church, and it's not talking about a commitment to the programs of this local church, and this is not a commitment to the Sunday school program. This is not a commitment to just one of the ministries like youth or children's ministry. This is not a commitment that I'm asking you to for the music and the worship productions on this stage platform I'm not even talking about a commitment to provide a service for the church. You see, those, everything that I mentioned, those are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things to be committed to. But I'm talking about making Christ known through your commitment to the people that make the local church, that make the body, that comprise the body of Christ. From the churches that I've had the honor of serving in, it's been my experience that many people are determined to hide behind commitments to programs and productions. What's their intent of hiding behind these commitments? It's in order to intentionally hide from the people of the church. It sounds so silly, but it's so true. In other words, people will think, I will busy myself up with the calendar of the church. I will busy myself up with a title. I'm going to be the chair. I'm going to be the director of. I'm going to be in charge of this. I'm a part of this committee. And they will do all these things so that they'll never have to engage with the people of the church. They hide behind these things. 
Why is this dangerous? See, this form of commitment, it's dangerous not only for the individual, but it is also dangerous for the church as a whole. We can't be this type of church. We need to be his church that makes Christ known. How? By growing in relational depth through our commitment to the people of the local church on mission together. I don't do this often, but I want you to kind of just look around. And I mean actually like look around. (laughs) Those of you guys online, look in a mirror or something. But those of you guys here this morning, look around. I want you to ask yourself this question. Look three columns away. Look five rows behind you, three rows in front of you. Does that person know what you struggled with this past week? When was the last time you got to pray with someone because you needed help from a brother or sister in Christ and they're the row next to you? We can't be a church that slaps on a smile and expect to grow as a church. Again, this is a hard love moment, but out of my love for you guys, I want you to know that there's more than just programs within a church. Programs are great, but it means nothing for your spiritual growth if you do not journey with other people through your faults, through your sin, through your celebrations, through your personal schedules. Journey with other brother and sisters in Christ. Faulting Christian, if if you're struggling with this type of commitment, I want to exhort you. Turn away from your privatized Christianity. It's the biggest lie that happened the past two, three decades within the church. Turn away from individualized personal piety. Turn to Christ and his church. Make Christ known through your commitment to the people that make up the body that has been given a mission. Come find me, come find Matt, and let's find ways to plug you into or even re-engage you into the community here, the people of this local church. And in this last stage of chapter 14, we see Paul and Barnabas complete their journey in Derby and begin their journey back home. You know, they could have chosen an easier route back home. They could have traveled southeast towards Paul's birthplace and then from there at that port, gone back home to their sending church. But instead of choosing the the easiest route back, they decided to visit all the local churches that were established on the first missionary journey. This would have taken several more days, possibly weeks, or even months. In this passage, we see this lesson that it is essential to follow up and care for each and every evangelistic effort. As a friend once said, I think he's probably in his 80s now, but he wisely said this from all his years of ministry, like newborn babies, new believers must be nurtured and guided to proper food. Otherwise, they perish. There is no doubt that this principle was on the minds of Paul and Barnabas as they risked their lives journeying back to the very cities that they were violently kicked out of. 
See, this dynamic duo is demonstrating what great love for the gospel and great love for his church look like. Their heart was to see healthy churches in each of these cities they were kicked out of. So as they returned back to Lystra, Iconium, and to the uh, Pisidian Antioch, they sought after every Christian convert and ministered to them. Verse 22 tells us that they strengthened the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to continue in their faith and reminded them, they reminded them of the many hardships that they will face as they bear the name of Jesus. Along with this encouragement, Paul and Barnabas appointed a plurality of elders for them in every church. John Stott uh, explains that the modern pattern of one pastor over one church was simply unknown in Paul's day. For more examples of plurality of elders, see Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 15, Acts 16, Acts 20, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 1, James 5, 1 Peter 5. And we can talk about this later. But rather than, than each church having one pastor, we see that each church had a team of pastors. Some full-time, some part-time, some paid. Others serve voluntarily. Each of these elders were raised up in-house within each local congregation. And this would have necessitated adequate time for Paul to train them. As he writes in 2 Timothy, Paul's heart was not to simply evangelize to the masses and leave. It was to establish healthy churches with qualified shepherd leaders for these new converts. And just like we saw in the beginning of chapter 13, with prayer and with fasting, they committed the elders to the Lord in whom they had believed. From there, the section ends that they crossed over the Taurus Mountains, journeyed to Pamphylia's coastal swamps, preached the word in Perga, and then went down to Adelia, the port of Pamphylia, And that's when they sailed back home to their sending church. Get this, when they arrived back home, Paul and Barnabas did three things. They gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done on this missionary journey. And they celebrated. They celebrated how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And I love, I love how Luke ends this chapter. And he ends it with this literary device that connects us back to The fact in chapter 13, too, that Luke is bringing our attention that it was the spirit that initiated the church to send Paul and Barnabas for the work. And in return, the sending church commended them to the grace of God for the work they have just completed. And I also love the words that he ends with, verse 28, describing this time in fellowship. Paul and Barnabas remained no little time with the disciples. Simply writing, they stayed a long time, could not capture the joy these two shared being reunited with their brothers and their sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, does this describe your relationship with others here at Wiley Baptist Church? From Sunday to Sunday, does it feel like coming home? Do you long to be with each other in community Or are you like those church ninjas that sneak out 
<laughs> the back entrance so that you don't have to talk to anyone? Do you comfortably hide behind different services of the church or supporting the church's programs in order to keep brothers and sisters at a safe, controllable distance away from your personal life? Do you have a sacrificial love for the people that this church is composed of on mission? One pastor in the late 18th century summarizes this sacrificial love well for the church. He says, for her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers shall ascend. To her, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Just very quickly, two conclusion points. Non-believers, I want to exhort you, persevere to make, or persevere to know Christ. You know, many things have been addressed to believers this morning about making Christ known, but for you, making Christ known cannot be done until you yourself have experienced the joy of personally knowing God. Again, my hope is that you recognize your great need for Jesus and that you know him today. My hope is that you've been able to witness why Christians are so determined to make Christ known. And it is because of our love for those like yourself. Those who have not confronted the weight of their sin and not experienced the good news of the gospel that Jesus had paid for the sin of all who believe in him. I exhort you, turn to Christ, non-believer. Trust him and experience the immeasurable joy of salvation this morning. And I'm gonna pivot to you Christians. I'm gonna talk to you guys. Make Christ known with an unshakable boldness. This necessitates that we follow the example of Paul and Barnabas as they relied on the Lord for grace-enabled endurance to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Make Christ known prudently and persistently by seeking wisdom that only comes from the Lord. And Christians, make Christ known with an accurate yet adaptable witness by building bridges in order to establish connection points to non-believers, this good news of the gospel. Make Christ known despite physical and emotional setbacks by preparing for opposition and being driven by the importance of the gospel message. And finally, make Christ known through your commitment to the local church by sacrificially loving the church to good health and gospel celebration.